0: My Global IQ is 109. 100, 7, 145, 122, 109, 132, 180, 137, 103, 139, 151, 147, 103, 126. I'm your host Jim Falk and today I'm joined by Hampton Sides. He's the author of On Desperate Ground, Marines at the Reservoir, The Korean War's Greatest Battle. Welcome to Global IQ
1: nice to be with
0: you so Hampton I noticed that your books cover a broad range of topics including uh, the life of Kit Carson Uh, you wrote about him in Blood and Thunder to the assassination of Martin Luther King in Hellbound on his trail to your latest On Desperate Ground what drew you to writing particularly about this subject
1: you're right. I do have a little bit of um, kind of a historical ADD, ADD or something like that. I, w- I want to move on to a different time period, a different part of the country, a different um, uh, atmosphere. Um, uh, in this case, On Desperate Ground, which is about a, a battle in the Korean War, you know, I wanted to understand and sort of deconstruct um, the, the most uh, intense, the most harrowing Battle of the Korean War, the war that was my parents' generation's war, uh, and a war that's not very well understood, not not really studied as much. You it's know, Forgotten it's kind of it, you know it's called the Forgotten War. These guys, sometimes called the Silent Generation, they just kind of went and fought this battle and uh, fought fought this war and and went home um, without much fanfare. And um, aside from endless episodes of MASH. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a war that has a very deep you know, purchase on the national imagination or whatever. So I want to understand it. And, uh, but it more immediately, it, it came about because I met some veterans of the battle, the Battle of chosen Reservoir. Uh, and these guys were, you know, uh, some of them uh, missing digits from the cold, you know, the, the incredible frostbite that these men suffered because you know, 35 below 0, weather when they fought in this battle, and I, I you know, I just kind of want to understand well, well, what were we doing there? How were we fighting against Mao's troops? This was kind of the opening salvo of of the Cold War in many ways, and uh, you know, it went from being a regional conflict to suddenly kind of a world conflict uh, almost overnight. And and so, um, and it also is a battle that just kind of has this almost classical quality to it. You know, it's like something out of Herodotus or Thucydides. You know, it's like men marching into the mountains. Uh, They get surrounded by the shores of a lake. They're nearly annihilated, but they figure out a way to regroup and and march their way out. Uh, I I just kind of love the the narrative arc of the story.
0: And we also really don't want to always remember or publicize what was a defeat. This was a retreat for U.S. forces, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, of course. The Marines don't like the word retreat, and they do anything to avoid using it out loud. Um, there are a lot of euphemisms for for retreat: um, advance to the rear, um, retrograde maneuver. Uh, and in this case, you know, the the general who led the First Marine Division said, "We're attacking in another direction," um, which is an interesting concept. And I use it in you know, like around the house sometimes when you know. I'm retreating. <laughs> what was the strategic objective? You know, the strategic objective initially was to survive. You know, uh, essentially, they got into a position—the First Marine Division and other uh, army units—that uh, where they were surrounded ten to one on a battlefield by the Chinese, and they realized there's just no way they can keep marching north towards the Yellow River, which is where they were—they were trying to unite all of Korea. So that was their um, goal. Then. The, yeah. That was this, you know their strategic objective until suddenly it became much more just an existential thing. Like, we, we are about to be annihilated here. We've got to figure out a way to survive this. And um, they had to regroup, they had to uh, kind of collapse all these different enclaves of, uh, along this long road up in the mountains into one big kind of citadel, this kind of uh, bastion that the General, General Smith um, created build an air, airfield, get the casualties out, uh, and begin marching back towards the um, sea, the safety of the sea, to get a position that they could hold or to evacuate. As it turned out, the the Army and, and uh, General MacArthur had decided to evacuate all the troops uh, from this place on, on a level of kind of like Dunkirk, one of these enormous evacuations, uh, which happened. All of this happened in, in the fall and early winter of 1950. You used the word winner, and one of the things about your book that
0: I found so compelling was the description of the conditions. Tell our listeners about what these men were facing.
1: You're like in the old days when uh, armies would encounter weather like this. They would uh, kind of shake hands, uh, reach across the uh, divide, and say, well, you know, we'll see in the spring. <laughs> this is insane. <laughs>
0: Which is what the Taliban do now yeah, yeah. in Afghanistan. Yeah,
1: I guess that's right. And, you know, go to Valley Forge or wherever. And uh, in this case, they didn't do that. They continued to fight in these conditions. Um, it becomes the third combatant, as they say, you know, old man winter. Um, weapons wouldn't fire correctly. Artillery wouldn't fight. It wouldn't fire correctly. Uh, airplanes, you know, wouldn't operate right. You know, it's just everything slowed down and became very, um, you know, it just it's it's became um, this all suffusing force that affected everybody, and um, not only that, but of course, men you know started to freeze to death, and they they, they couldn't think correctly. They, they you know your brain starts to to, to slow down, um, so that becomes this factor in the whole narrative of the book. You know, it's just uh, how do you deal with cold like that? How do you function? Uh, what about your clothes? What about your socks? You know, people's feet especially were. Uh, blocks of ice. And and, uh, so many of these men, I think it's about 85% of the participants of the battle, uh, suffer from, you know, from some form of long-term frostbite damage, neuropathies, losing digits, you know, fingers, toes, parts of their face. Um, And it's kind of a laboratory that um, the the Army used and the Armed Forces used to study what what does cold weather do to people and how do we guard against it? Um, So, yeah, that's and, some of the aspects of this this cold thing, which is of such a big part. Not only you know, not only of this battle, but really so much of the Korean War. They, they, the veterans you talk to them, they talk first and foremost
0: about but, the cold. But you were able to interview some of the Chinese veterans too. How are they outfitted, and how did they view the battle? Were they the victors?
1: They were actually outfitted even much worse than we were. Uh, we weren't prepared for the cold. They were. They were actually training. Getting ready for an amphibious invasion of Taiwan, uh, when they got the call to go north to intervene in North Korea, so many of them were wearing tennis shoes, you know, with no socks, no gloves. Uh, unbelievable that they were in these circumstances. So they were freezing to death. Even, and they slept together. They, I remember you described. Yeah, that. they like hugged each other at night. They, they, uh, you know, they just were just freezing to death. And 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 so many of the Marines talked. Talk about having encountered Chinese soldiers who were, you know, frozen to death in, co- in foxholes, and uh, you know, it's just just horrible. But having said all that, the, to answer the second part of your question, the Chinese view this as a victory. They won. They ejected the First Marine Division, our finest fighting force, uh, from the battlefield. And um, now, at what cost? The, the marines inflicted staggering casualties on the Chinese, uh, as many as thirty thousand Chinese died during this battle. Uh, these are casualties that we would find obscene, but Mao seemed to be okay with. Uh, he used his men like cannon fodder, and many of his weapons, he, many of his uh, soldiers, he sent into battle without weapons, which is just an amazing idea. Like the first wave was supposed to attack with their weapons. And, and then they get mowed down, and the second wave comes and picks up those weapons and keeps on going. So, um, you know, it's it's a classic example of what we now call asymmetrical warfare, uh, very different kinds of armies fighting against each other uh, with a lot of, you know, with their own kind of built-in prejudices and arrogant, bits of arrogance, uh, but they, they were quite effective. How many men did we lose? Uh, our casualties on the Marine side was about 1,000. Um, th- there were some army guys on the east side of the reservoir who lost closer to three thousand men. Um, so you know we had our casualties too, but thirty thousand Chinese. It was it was a it was a very asymmetrical outcome. Give me your thoughts on General Douglas MacArthur. Mm, complicated. Um, great character. <laughs> uh, interesting figure in American history. Uh, brilliant, but usually the first to admit it. They always say, uh, you know, someone who was in love with the vertical pronoun. He loved himself. It was all about him, all, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he, he and and his staff in Tokyo, and therein lies the problem. He was in Tokyo most of the time. He wasn't in the field in Korea very often. I think he was out of touch with reality. Um, they wanted to believe that that the Chinese would not intervene. And uh, they wanted to just forge ahead as quickly as possible and get to the Yalu and, and unite all of Korea, which would have been a great outcome. I mean, I think we all would have liked that. Um, but uh, he didn't want to believe the Chinese would get there and, and create such problems for us. The, the intelligence began to come in very loud and clear that, that, that the Chinese were there in large numbers, and he didn't want to believe it. His staff also, didn't want to tell him the truth. I mean, it's hard to d- differentiate between whether it was him or his staff of sycophants who who told him what he wanted to hear. Uh, but they said it was. These are you know rogue elements. These are volunteers. Don't worry about these guys. They aren't a threat. They aren't a real threat. Keep marching to the yellow. And uh, uh, so you know, ultimately, it was a, it was a massive intelligence failure that led to tens of thousands of. American and UN troops directly into more you know mortal danger.
0: Uh, was the fact that the Secretary of Defense was a former general, George C. Marshall, did that play a role, perhaps, in some of the
1: communication failures? Uh, MacArthur was constantly at war with the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and you know everything that was going on back in Washington. He he always felt like he was trying to convince them of things that they you know they didn't want to hear. Um, but they, but in the end, um, you know, uh, this was this was something that everyone wanted. It was a very tantalizing idea. Let, let, let's don't just take Seoul and retake the pre-war borders of the thirty-eighth parallel. But let's just keep going all the way. Let's get Pyongyang. Let's get all of Korea, all the way up to the Yalu. It's a very tantalizing idea. Uh, Truman himself very much wanted this to happen, so you can't blame it all on MacArthur. But um, Truman's orders to him were, you know, as soon as you learn that the Chinese have intervened in large numbers, stop. Hold a position that you can hold and stop in your tracks. And that's something MacArthur just did not want to hear.
0: You talk in the book about the first and only meeting that Truman had with MacArthur. Was that
1: really the seeds of where they started to not really communicate well? Well, it was the only time, first and only, and last time they ever met, which is kind of amazing to think that these two men whose, whose fates are so inextricably intertwined, um, this, is, this is it. They met one time on this island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, Wake Island, and um, you know things went actually quite cordially, quite well on this, on this island, this one little meeting, it was two hours. And uh, Truman asked MacArthur, Well, what about the Chinese? Are the Chinese going to intervene? And and MacArthur said, Well, you know, they won't. That would be stupid if they did. And even if they did, we would destroy them absolutely, utterly destroy them. Um, So Truman said, Fine, you know, go ahead, keep going. But um, if they do intervene, let me know. And they said a number of other things, which are endlessly debated by historians today. Uh, It's a strange meeting when you think about the fact that President Truman flew all the way across the Pacific to meet with this general for two hours. (laughs) Uh, We don't really know. There were some moments of that meeting that are still uh, shrouded in mystery.
0: Were you able to get access to most of the documents? Have they been declassified?
1: Most of them are at the Truman Presidential Library in um, in Independence, Missouri. That's where I did most of the research for that. Uh, I went to the MacArthur uh, Library in, in Norfolk and, uh, you know, just tried to piece that whole thing together. It was a very interesting meeting. I think MacArthur was was mystified by what it was about. He didn't know if he was going to be dressed down for something he'd done or said or or if there was a new order or there was some new thing that was about to be unveiled. Um Apparently not.
0: And what's so interesting about him was even after he was fired by Truman, there was a movement to have him running for president.
1: You know, MacArthur certainly had his um, his cult following then and now. Uh, you know, people who believed he could do no wrong, that he was uh, he certainly appealed to kind of certain right wing, ultra uh, right wing, almost kind of uh, reactionary forces in, in American life. Uh, and, you know, after he was fired, he got that ticker tape parade in New York, and he was beloved in, in many circles. I, I actually, you know, ha- have done two books that touch on MacArthur, another book called Ghost Soldiers, which is about his baton death march in World War II, and Corregidor, and the prison camps, and so forth. So these two episodes, then, and the story of The Chosen Reservoir, are kind of his lowest moments of, of a, a long... and illustrious, and but also controversial career. And uh, I've kind of seen him up close in his worst two moments. And uh, I think it's kind of soured my impression of him, I'm afraid.
0: But we should encourage people to visit the museum. I've gone to Virginia Beach scores of times. It was my childhood beach. And it wasn't until just this, this year that I visited the museum, and really mm-hmm. worth, worth no, it's really That's a great place. What are your thoughts on reunification
1: of, of Korea? Well, you know, I think it should happen. It's feel feel like it's destined to happen, just as Berlin was destined to be reunited. Um, you get a feel when you're there, as you know. I've only been to, to South Korea, but there's this great hope, this great you know, kind of naive, perhaps naive belief that it will happen sometime in, you know, in, the, in the next, what, 50 years or something. But the obstacles are so formidable because of the Kim dynasty and just how crazy they are and the things they say and do. And, um, you know, Korea was one country, it's one culture, it's one language, and it should never have been divided like that. It was completely arbitrary, and that was a, a convenient line that just happened to be there on the map, 38th parallel, um, and uh, it makes no sense. It shouldn't be there. And um, you know, but I don't want. I don't want to be naive about it. They're, they're, the obstacles are huge.
0: Economic um, disparity, etc. And now,
1: and now, you know, if you did reunite these two countries, you kind of wonder how you know they, they were one people, one culture, one language. But now, they've really evolved into two very different countries. Uh, South Korea is this dynamic. Um, you know, complicated, capitalistic society, the eleventh largest economy in the world, um, a democracy, maybe a flawed democracy in many ways, but it's, it's work. You know, it's, it's democracy, and also an ally of, of, of ours, obviously. And then, and whatever you have in North Korea, I don't even know precisely what it is. It's a, it's a totalitarian state based on a cult of personality and uh, a strange guy with a very strange haircut. Um, so I don't know how these two countries could reunite without a certain amount of turbulence and turmoil and, and violence probably, uh, but I still think it's probably destined to happen.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much for being with us. I have to say that a friend gave me your book for Christmas last year, and uh, I read it and then came into our office and said, this is one of the most interesting books I've read on the Korean War. Let's try to get him to come speak. So uh, I'm sorry it took a year to get you here, but it is. Uh, finally happened. With the publication of the paperback. So it's an opportunity for people to give your book as a holiday gift again this year thank
1: you well I'm, it's been a pleasure being on your uh, program
0: great thank you so much thank you for listening to global iq with jim falk a production of the world affairs council of dallas fort worth subscribe and rate global iq on itunes stitcher or your favorite app special thanks to my producers Kara shekman and kayla smith and especially our intern ej Roram, for his valuable research and with that as always i ask what's your global iq